You know, a quick observation of the world will tell you that there are two types of people. There are two types of people that exist. There are those who think that they're better than everybody else and those that think that they're worse than everybody else. Now, if you're happening to be thinking to yourself, well, I think that there are other kind of categories. I think there are two others. I think there's the humble and there's the apathetic. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to throw both of those out. The humble, um, that's not natural to man, okay? And if anybody happens to say, you know what, I'm humble, they have just denied their humility in the fact that they made the statement. So that one doesn't work. And then there's the apathetic. You know, they say, well, you know what, it just doesn't really matter. Well, one of two reasons uh, exist for that statement. One is they're lying to you. And though they might say that they don't have, they, they don't think they're better or worse in, in this maybe particular area, the longing of their heart might be to be better or fear of being worse than everybody else. Or maybe they don't really care about that area because they're too busy trying to be better or worse in some other area and therefore they're still you know, one of the two categories. You know, we have this desire. We have, uh, people, again, fall into two categories. Either they think they're better or they think that they're worse. Those that think they're better are like Dr. Seuss's star-bellied snitches, or, ironically, uh, Max Lucado's star-stickered wimmicks. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, the snitches, uh, I actually saw this on a video that, that the boys had, but the snitches, uh, there were some who were star-bellied, and there's some that didn't have any, Right? And the star belly thought that they were better because they had these stars. Until one day this Mr. Fix-It-Up comes to town and he's got this machine that he can add stars. And of course the, star, the, the plain belly stars, or the plain belly snitches go through and get stars. Now everybody has stars. But wait, Mr. Fix-It-Up has another machine, a star removing machine, right? And you see what happens here? He's got these two machines. And the next thing you know, you've got them running back and forth through all these machines, and every time they run through, they have to pay until eventually they run out of money, and nobody can remember who was originally a star-bellied and who was originally a plain-bellied. You know, it didn't matter anymore. I mean, I know that this is a kid's story, but, but the reality is we do this thing all the time. We, we find something to set ourselves apart, to exalt ourselves, to, to uh, lift ourselves up to, to where we think we're better than everyone else, and we look down upon those that aren't like us. I mean, we do it with grades, we do it with sports, we do it with popularity, with our looks. We do it with it's just silly stuff, like how good you are at Guitar Hero. I mean, it doesn't even matter. You can't play the guitar, so why are you wasting all your time? <sighs> anyway, um, we'll find anything we can to exalt ourselves and separate ourselves from one another. Or you may be on the other extreme. You may be one of those... People that just think that you're worse than everybody else. It just seems like you're constantly comparing and you never quite measure up. You're always giving yourself a failing grade. I can never be like that person. I'm never as good as that person. I'll never live up to that kind of standard. And you, have, you sit in this never being able to measure up attitude and you end up isolating yourself from all the people that you think are better than you and surround yourself from people that, that maybe achieve at your level. Right? Or don't hold you accountable. Don't, don't make you feel bad about yourself. The reality is we do this all the time. And we're in one category or the other, or we're in both on, on different issues. But we do this constantly. We might be a star belly in one situation, but a plain belly in another. 
But no matter whether you think that you are better than others or that you think that you're worse, the root issue is the same. It all breaks down to one thing. You're proud and selfish. You're slave to yourself. Either you're thinking that you're better or wishing that you were better. The thing that you are worshiping, the thing that you are serving, the thing that you are sacrificing for, the thing that you are trusting in, the thing that you want to see exalted more than anything else is yourself. That is your idol. That is what you want. You're putting yourself first. You're making yourself ultimate. And this is the essence of sin. This morning we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. That's pages 837 uh, on the Bibles in the chairs there. Um, But what we're going to see is Jesus is confronting both types of people. Those that think they're better and those that think that they're worse. Because the issue is the same, right? He came for sinners to save them from themselves. Jesus calls sinners. He cares for sinners. And Jesus bids sinners to come. So that's where we're going. Let's pray, and then we'll read. Father God, you are gracious, merciful, kind, loving, generous. You do not treat us as our sin deserves, but you continue to call us and bid us and draw us near to yourself. God, we we confess immediately that we are not worthy of that. God, I pray that as we reflect on your word, we reflect on the truth and the beauty of the gospel that our hearts might be open, that we might be careful to examine ourselves, to see how it is we are comparing ourselves. Do we think we're better? Do we think we're worse? And whatever that is, we take it to the cross and realize that all that really matters is how we compare to Christ. And in light of that, we might be ready to respond. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts to draw us to yourself. Do not let anyone leave this room without recognizing who they are and what they need. And may they find their peace, their joy, their rest, and their hope in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Again, that's page 837. The Bible's in the chairs. Jesus went out again beside the sea, Sea of Galilee, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he re- and as he reclined at, his, at the table at his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. First truth we see from this passage is that Jesus calls sinners. This seems evident enough, but we need to think about this. All right, context, right? So Jesus has just been in Capernaum. You know, he had a little uh, 
he was there teaching in a house and had a, a major disruption. Some guys took a paralytic up on the roof, ripped the hole, lowered him down, and he gave Jesus this opportunity to show that the real essence of his being is not the fact that he can heal, but that he has the authority to forgive sin. Right? And so from there, um, from there, uh, we see, well, I guess we see not only that, but we also see that Jesus is faithful in fulfilling Old Testament promises. That healing of the lame was actually a promise that would come with the, the, the coming glory of the Lord, which we know is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is fulfilling these Old Testament promises, right? And that healing a lame is the indication that the glory of the Lord is here. It's all around us. And we see it in Jesus. From there, Jesus goes out again and he, he goes to do what he came to do, which is to preach and teach the gospel of God, right? We see him here. He leaves Capernaum. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee. And what's he doing, according to verse 13? He's, again, he's teaching the word of God. He's proclaiming the gospel. Has Mark been pretty clear up to this point about what Jesus' real ministry is all about? Has he made it abundantly clear at this point? I mean, starting in chapter 1, verse 14... To now, Mark has mentioned 12 times what Jesus' ministry is all about. It's all about the preaching and teaching of the Word. He came to proclaim the Gospel. He came to tell people who He was, why He came, and what it means to follow Him. That's His ministry. So Jesus left Capernaum. He's making His way along the sea, and He's teaching there. And like so many times, the passive the misunderstanding, the non-committal, the fickle, the obstructing, the unrepentant, the faithless crowd followed him. Right? Mark is not complimentary when it comes to the crowd that follows Jesus because they're always getting in the way. They're never really making decisions. They're, they're constantly misunderstanding and they're not responding as they should in following him in the way that he commands. They just kind of sit on the fence. And so here he is, he's, he's making his way along the sea, and he comes to this man, Levi, this tax collector, who's there along the road, and his business was to collect taxes from tradesmen as they make commerce, as they make sales. They came through, he had a bunch of thugs right there, and they had to pay him. That was his job. But there's, there's more than that, right? I mean, he's an Israelite. He's on the wrong side because he is serving the Roman nation. Right? As Jesus passed by, he comes to this guy and, and he talks to him. We don't make a whole lot of that today, but that's a big deal. A tax collector in that day, they were greedy extortionists. They were above the law crooks, above the law thieves. They used their positions to line their pockets. That's what they did, right? And so honest folk would, would come just trying to do their business, and they would come up to these guys, and these guys would take more than their fair share, more than what was due the nation. They took it, and they, they profited at the expense of other people. So they weren't trusted. They were hated because they stole, and no one could hold them accountable. But even worse than that, because he's an Israelite working for the wrong side, not only is he a thief, but he's a traitor. He is sold his people out. He sold himself out. He's willing to betray. He's willing to steal from. He's willing to, to use any means necessary to profit himself at the expense of everyone else, at the expense of his old people. This is like a, the Jews working for the Nazi party or black Confederate soldiers. 
You're selling out the ideals of your people in order to assure your own personal gain. So he's not only is he this above-the-law crook, but he's a rebel. He's a traitor. He's a betrayer. He would have been repulsive in their eyes. And Levi knows it. And I'm sure that he feels it. Yet ironically, Jesus comes to him and offers him the exact same call that he did to Andrew, Simon, James, and John. He's there. He's he's walking along. You know, he says he's passing by. He saw him. He said to him, follow me. And the man got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. It's identical to what happened with Andrew, Simon, James, and John. The exact same thing. I mean, if you look and compare the passages, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, and this one right here, the same language is used. It's identical. Jesus' call is exactly the same as it was for them. He's a different kind of sinner, the worst of the worst, in fact, in the eyes of the Israelites, but Jesus still called him with the same call. It didn't matter what he had done. It didn't matter all the sins that he had committed. It didn't matter all the wrong that that he had committed or how much that he had sinned. It didn't matter to Jesus that, that he was this greedy, crooked extortioner who would have betrayed his own people, caused his own people to be beaten, their stuff to be taken, even imprisoned, so that he could make a buck. None of that mattered to Jesus. In that moment, all that mattered was his willingness to leave everything and follow Jesus. It didn't matter who he was. It mattered what he did, how he responded. All that mattered was his willingness to repent and believe, to turn away from his sin and to turn to Christ. Levi was not too big a sinner to be saved. He was not beyond hope, right? Not because of anything in and of himself, but because of Jesus. As I look at this passage, I'm always curious about the relationship dynamics that are occurring. You know, I I, kind of wonder what Andrew, Simon, James, and John were thinking at this point, right? Because Levi is outside of Capernaum, and his job is to tax tradesmen. Andrew, Simon, James, and John were tradesmen. And if his booth were anywhere close to their business, Levi would have taxed them. Levi would have stolen from them. Levi would have wronged them. Levi would have sinned against them. Levi would have betrayed them. This is not just some random guy. This is not some stranger. This is not some arbitrary circumstance that just happened to look similar. This guy could have been their enemy. Yet Jesus calls him with the same call. How easy would it have been for Andrew, Simon, James, and John to look down on Levi, to think that they were better? I mean, after all, their profession was at least honorable. If this whole thing with Jesus doesn't work out, they can always return to fishing. But Levi, if he's truly repentant, if he has any kind of moral at all, will realize he can never go back. He can never return to the tax booth. That's done. If if he's committed to Christ, then there's no returning to life as we know it. And that could cause them to look down on him. 
And then I, I got to thinking about Levi. And I wonder what Levi truly thought as he looked at these men that he had probably sinned against. To think about getting up and following Jesus means that day after day after day after day after day I have to face these men that I sinned against, that I stole from. I'd be humbling. I wonder how, if he thought to himself that he could never measure up to these guys, that he could never repay his debt, that he could never get over the fact that he betrayed them. But when Jesus calls sinners, he doesn't just call them away from the stuff that they do. He calls them away from who they are. He calls them away from everything that they've loved, everything that they find their identity in, everything that they find pleasure in, that they they seek after, all, all those idols that they've taken upon themselves. He removes them all, replaces them all, and in their place, He puts Himself. It's the same call for all five men, regardless of their past, regardless of their sin, and regardless of their pride. It doesn't matter. In reality, the four fishermen are no better off than Levi was, than this tax collector. Though he was vile and wicked and would have been considered an outcast among his people, they were really no different. They were just as big as sinners. Maybe their sin wasn't as, as overt, as grand. Maybe their sin was more subtle. It happened many, many times over. The call is the same. Jesus still called them away from their idols. Jesus still called them away from their sin. Jesus still called them away from the things that they loved. Remember what they are? Their family, their job security, comfort, familiarity. As Jesus' name began to be spread and the crowd was drawing around him, they, they began to to seek the popularity, the gain of, of the glory of men. And Jesus called away them away from, from health. He called them away from fame. He called them away from popularity. Anything that they could find their identity in, He called them away. And when you compare that to Levi's love of money, is that really any different? Are they really any worse or better? No. Sin is sin. If anything, it shows that Levi actually risked more to follow Jesus because in leaving the tax booth, he could never go back. The truth is, sin is sin. The real issue is not so much your individual sins as, as it is what you put first in your life. Is it Jesus or is it something else? Do you make other things ultimate? If so, that's your God. If you're serving that, if you're sacrificing for that, if you're living for that, if you're saying, you know what, I'll be happy if I could just have this, or if I lose this, I don't know how I'm going to go on. If you think about it all the time, if you sin in order to get it, or sin because you don't get it, that is your idol. That's what you're wanting. That's what you're putting first. And you're not just putting it before other people. You're putting it before Christ. When Jesus calls, He calls you away from everything. Everything that you find your comfort and identity in so that you might follow Him. That's what it means to follow Christ. 
And so this leads me to ask a couple of questions. I mean, how do you see yourself? How do you see other sinners? Do you see yourself as better than others? Do you think that I don't sin or I don't sin too much, it's really okay? Do you really see that the, the, the idols in your heart, the things that, that, that strive for your attention and your affection that you sacrifice yourself for over and above Christ? Do you think that you're not as bad as somebody else? Or maybe you're on the opposite end. You think you're worse than everybody else. You think, my sins are unforgivable. The reality is we're all sinners. We have all, whether in huge overt ways or in small, many, many small and subtle ways, lived as if this is my world and I'm God. We've rebelled against God in thought, in word, in deed. We've, we've tried to live without Him. We've tried to make ourselves first and say, God, I'll look to you when I need you, but I'm going to do what I want to do. To heck with you. How many times have we done that? Or we use God to justify our own ends, our own means, rather than asking, God, what do you want? And then doing that. We have put ourselves first when that place rightfully belongs to Christ. We've tried to live as if this is my world and I am God. And in so doing, we have willfully put ourselves under the just wrath of God. Guys, we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine. And God is more holy and righteous and perfect and good than you could ever begin to comprehend. It's huge. And we have no way of earning our way to Him. We have placed ourselves under His judgment. And apart from Him doing something, we have no hope. That's how desperate we are. It doesn't matter who's better or who's worse. There are only, only desperate sinners. Desperate sinners who Jesus calls. And desperate sinners who Jesus loves. The second truth we see from this passage is that Jesus cares for sinners. Instead of rejecting this wicked tax collector... And all his vile friends, Jesus does completely the opposite. He invites them into intimate fellowship with himself. He befriends them. He cares for them. He loves them. He's willing to go into Levi's house and share a meal with him and all of Levi's sinful posse. It doesn't matter. Verse 15 says that as he reclined at the table in his house, and I think that's Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. You know, in that day, sharing a meal was a sign of intimate friendship. You didn't get more intimate than that. Here's Jesus reclining at Levi's table as the guest of honor as all the town's reprobates have gathered together. I mean, this is something that an upstanding citizen would never do. They would never think of doing this. The people were so amazed by Jesus' kindness towards Levi that they couldn't help but want to follow him, to see what he was going to say next, to see what he was going to do next. They, they drew near because of his compassion for Levi. And so the next thing you know, Levi's house is filled with people, sinners, outcasts of society. The vile, the wicked, the wretched, 
the undeserving. But he welcomed them into fellowship with himself. You know, this must have been quite the motley crew, because not only did it have the most vile of the vile, the the social outcasts, it says that the scribes of the Pharisees were there. And you could only assume that sort of everybody in between on this worldly righteousness scale was gathered together. Everybody, completely different. In verse 16, we see that the scribes questioning Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? As those who devoted themselves to righteous... <laughs> that was weird. Um, as, as those who have devoted themselves to, um, to living righteous and devoted lives according to the law, they simply could not understand how Jesus could eat with these undeserving sinners. I mean, according to worldly standards, it's the scribes and the Pharisees who are deserving of fellowship with Jesus, according to worldly standards, right? Uh, socially and religiously, the, the tax collectors and sinners were outcasts. Nobody wanted to be around them. But the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were completely different matter. Socially and religiously, they were in. They were it. They were the leaders. They were the people that, that everyone looked to. They devoted themselves, their entire lives, to, to holy and devout living, to being upstanding moral characters, to, to living this great life. And people looked to them. They, they wanted to be around them. They, they got all the best seats and all the best venues. That, they were it. They were the celebrities of the day because it was a culture that was set on righteous living. So according to worldly standards, it should have been them that were gathered around Jesus. But again, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is what makes it so amazing. Fellowship with Jesus destroys all social and religious conventions. It destroys them all. If you are with Jesus, you are not unclean. Not because you are worthy in and of yourselves, but because He chose you. Not because the world does. Not because men do. And so we see Jesus is not only challenging the idols of the fishermen and the tax collectors and sinners, He's also challenging the idols of the religious and the self-righteous. They too were being challenged by His invitation for fellowship. If Jesus was willing to eat with tax collectors and sinners, then surely he's willing to eat with them as well. And you know what? They hated it. They absolutely hated it. Because if Jesus was willing to do that, that means that my whole life, everything that I have worked for, my own righteousness, my, my willingness to be deserving and devout, it's all hogwash. It doesn't matter. Everything that I'm living for to prove myself to God is a bunch of garbage. And that's the truth. And they hated Him for it. They were trusting in their own religious efforts. They thought that that would be enough. But they cannot make themselves righteous and deserving before God. No one can do that. And they hated it. But yet by His grace, He still invited them. Jesus responds to the scribes in verse 17 by saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I came to call, to, not to call the righteous, but sinners. He refers to himself as a physician, as someone who treats, someone who restores, someone who heals, someone who cares for the sick. What he's not saying is, I'm, I'm coming for sinners because you guys are okay. You guys are righteous. You don't need a physician. I'm only here to take care of those that are sinners. That's not what he's saying. He's saying those who think they are well are not going to go to a physician, right? They don't think they need to. And if you're like me, even when you know you need to go to a physician, you're still not going to go, right? yeah. Yeah. But Jesus is saying you think you are well. He's saying if you think you are well, if you think you are righteous, then you won't come to me. Only those who realize that they are sick will come to the physician. Jesus stands ready to save them, but they have to realize that they need it. The scribes can't see their need of Christ. In their eyes, they are the deserving righteous, not undeserving sinners. And so they refuse to let go of their idols of religious practice, of self-righteousness, and of works-based righteousness. They continue to put themselves first, to trust in their own efforts, to earn their way to God. They fail to recognize that the sick can never make themselves well. You cannot be your own physician, and you cannot be a physician to others. Only Jesus can. But the reality is, Jesus' words are not just for the scribes, and they're not just for the disciples. And they're not just for the tax collectors and the sinners. They're for us. They're for you and me. In this eclectic group of people, Jesus is saying that there are not degrees of righteousness. These social barriers that you build up to separate yourself from one another are false, sinful dichotomies. These things that you you put up there to to bring distinction, to exalt some, and to humble others. It's all a bunch of trash. There are two types of people. There are those who are sick, and there are those who have been made well by the physician. And that's it. All are sick, and only those who realize they're sick and come to the physician are made well. You are not well in and of yourself. I care for you all, regardless of who you are. I'm not showing partiality here. I will heal all who recognize their true condition and come to me. But do you realize how radical this is? How unbelievably radical. Jesus is destroying this worldly concept of those who are better and those who are worse. No one, then, is irredeemable. No one is beyond hope. No one is exempt from His love because no one can deserve His love. We've got to catch that. He is taking people from every class, from every order, from every occupation, and bringing them together and saying, you are all so sick that it will lead to death and all of you need me. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that you need Jesus? Do you see how much you need Jesus? Do you believe that no one is beyond hope of the grace of God through Jesus Christ? There is no irredeemable sinner. 
Are you living and interacting in a way that extends the same love and hope? Or are you hanging out with people that are just like you? Now, I have to be honest here. I am really concerned with many things that we call Christian. Use that quotation intentionally. There are many groups, many entities, many organizations, and even churches that cater to like groups of people. If you go and you look at them, they're all the same. The same age, same, same economic level, same education, same life experience, same sort of likes, same sort of dislikes, same skin color, same values. Everything's the same. And if Jesus here is gathering this motley crew together, it's comprised of people that hate each other, that literally hate each other, and offers them the same call without partiality, the result of that call is a local group of Christians that have nothing in common but Christ, and then that is everything. That is all that matters. Losing a visible display of the gospel is not too far removed from losing the gospel itself. And we've got to be careful about this. Yeah, in a worldly standard, like attracts like. I get that. But that doesn't mean you stay there. That doesn't mean that that's God's intention, God's purpose. He is bringing together people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. People that hate one another, who have warred against one another, who have sinned against one another. And He brings them together. He calls them with the same call. And He unites them in Christ. And that's it. That's everything. And so why do so many of our Christian organizations basically look like clubs where everybody's exactly the same, doing the same kind of stuff? Because that's what they want to do. Because that's what they feel comfortable with. That's what they're familiar with. And at what point does the way that you're doing things begin to practically deny the gospel? At, at what point is it showing partiality? At what point is it playing favorites and treating other people as though they're not deserving of my time and my energy and my effort to share the gospel with them? It's far too easy to surround ourselves with comfortable, like Christian groups that may end up being social clubs and not Christian at all. We need to strive to make the gospel visible in our lives and in the communities that we live in. And to do this, we have to get outside of ourselves and our comfort zones and preach and display the gospel to all freely. We need to intentionally put the gospel on display. And this means reaching people that are different from me and including them into my family. And this is why we're making intentional efforts to get outside of ourselves. That's why we're trying to reach out to the Hispanic community. Because there's an overwhelming need. And they're unreached. They don't have the gospel. But this is why we're making efforts to reach the international uh, community here in town. And, and making efforts to share the gospel with them. We're going to be doing that with people that are different uh, gender. <laughs> than us. We're going to be doing that with different socioeconomic status than us. We're going to be doing that with people that are a different age group than us. It doesn't matter. We're moving away from all that. 
Because this, right here, when people look, displays the gospel immediately. We communicate more words just in this picture right here than anything else. It changes everything. We've got to be careful with that picture. Also, Jesus doesn't set up shop and wait for them to come to him. You see that Jesus goes out and He initiates fellowship with sinners. He dines with them. He welcomes them. He loves them. You could love sinners. That doesn't mean that He does what they do though, right? I mean, to reach Levi, He didn't go and pull up a seat by the tax booth and start collecting taxes, did He? I mean, to reach prostitutes, He didn't go hang out in brothels in the red light district all that kind of stuff. But what he did was he's intentional to go out. To go out to where they are. And as he passed along the roads, and as he entered the marketplaces, and as he went through the cities, he called to them, follow me. Leave what you have and follow me. And he did it without partiality to all who would hear. Whether it be the woman who was about to be stoned because of her prostitution, or whether it was the self-righteous chief of the Pharisees, Caiaphas. It's all the same. If Jesus intentionally reached out to sinners without preference, then so should we. We spend time with sinners because we realize that we too are sinners. We do not do it to condone their sin. But we hang out with them to attest to the fact that their lifestyles can be transformed by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It can really happen. There is hope for them. They are not beyond salvation. And so we can spread that love. Jesus died a gruesome death on a cross to redeem folks from their sin. He rose on the third day to show that God's wrath against sin had been satisfied. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I don't really know if I am forgivable. That is a lie. If you repent and believe in Jesus, then Christ died for your sin too. He died for every type of sin. He died for the most wretched, the most vile. It didn't matter. His resurrection proves that there's no... No sin that can defeat Him. And that hope is yours. There is no worst of the worst. Your sin is not too great for the love of God in Christ. Hear that? But we must respond to Him. The third truth we see from this text is that Jesus bids sinners to come. From the moment that Levi got up from his tax booth and followed Jesus, his life was completely different. It was absolutely changed. From that point on, he followed Jesus. You know, there's one important contextual detail that I intentionally left out until this point. Who is Levi, the son of Alphaeus? Who was he? Was he one of the twelve disciples? Was he James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the disciples' brother? Was he someone else? More than likely, Levi was another name for the Apostle Matthew, the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, Matthew gives an identical account of Jesus healing a paralytic, 
leaving there, passing by a tax collector, saying to him, follow me. The tax collector got up, left everything, went into his house, dined with him. There's a, there's a motley crew of people there. Again, the scribes are present. They ask, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus is, his response is the same with one exception. He adds another verse at the end of this statement. And the only difference between this passage, the Lucan passage, and Matthew's is the name. Here and in Luke, it's Levi. In Matthew, it's Matthew. Now, it could just be that uh, it, was, it was not that uncommon for people to have two names, right? You've got John Mark, that's Simon Peter, that's Saul who became Paul. So maybe this is Levi Matthew or Matthew Levi. You take your pick. But I think there's something more here. I think there's something more significant. You remember Simon was Simon until Peter said, from now on your name is Peter. Saul was Saul until he saw a vision of Jesus. It struck him blind. And as he repented and came to Christ, his name was changed to Paul. And I think Levi was Levi until he received the call of Jesus to follow. And he became Matthew. Levi was who he was before Christ. Matthew is who he is in Christ. Levi was joined to his sin. But Matthew is a name that was a gift from God. Being united with Christ has changed him. But that kind of hope for change is offered to us, but we must first recognize that we are sick. More than that, Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who you are apart from Christ. A child of wrath. It doesn't matter how good or bad you think you are. It doesn't matter whether you think you're better or whether you're worse. You are a child of wrath, an enemy of God, a rebel, a traitor, a betrayer of the one true king. That's who you are. Degree doesn't matter. It's all failure. And no matter how hard you try, you cannot save yourself. You have willfully, willingly, gladly sinned against God and all your righteous deeds, all your efforts are like filthy rags before Him. And even if you can live a perfect life from this point on, you can never atone for all the sin that you committed, even unknowingly. You just can't. There's nothing that you can do. It's not that you are basically good. Don't be like the self-righteous who deceive themselves into thinking, you know what, I'm basically good, and as long as I do this stuff, I'm going to be okay. Look at the stuff that I do. I was baptized when I was a kid. I grew up in the church. I tend regularly. I tithe. I'm basically a good person. I try to obey the law of the land. I try to obey the Ten Commandments. I, I'm charitable. I take the Lord's Supper. I serve in, in different ways in my church. 
All that doesn't matter because that's what you do, which is insufficient because you are not pure. You cannot make yourself pure and therefore all your deeds are trash. Righteousness is a standard of rightness, of perfection. And if you were to have it, you have to have God's standard of righteousness. And that can only happen through the perfect obedience of Christ substituted for you. It does no good to compare. I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not a bad sinner like this person. We need to realize that we need Jesus, that He is the great physician. We need to admit that we have no power in and of ourselves to earn our salvation. We cannot save ourselves. And if you do not think that you are that bad, then you do not yet recognize your need of Jesus. If this is not humbling, then I question whether you recognize your need of Jesus. If this doesn't cause you to want to repent, I'm concerned for you. Does this not affect you? I am un deserving I have no right to be up here talking to you but by the grace of God I am what I am but it doesn't simply end with us recognizing that we're sinners you must leave your present condition and follow Jesus you must respond you know, Levi he could have recognized that he was a sinner and that Jesus was the savior and sat right there at the tax booth and it would have been of no effect to him. It would have been no benefit. Faith is more than this intellectual assent that, yes, I am a sinner and Jesus is a Savior. It's only by getting up and following him that Jesus is my Savior. You must follow. You have to obey. There's, there's consequence to it. The reality of the grace that God gives you provides you the strength to stand up and walk in what He calls you to do. But you have to get up and do it. Do you truly comprehend your need for Jesus? Then you must get up. Do you understand the desperate state that you are in? Then don't harden your heart like those who think that they are well. Your hope must be in Jesus and Him alone. So will you stop living for yourself and put your trust in Christ? Will you follow Him? And will you seek His will and not your own? You always sing that song. I just want to end with just reminding you of the lyrics. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, joined with power. And He's able. He is able. He is willing Come and doubt no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you do not treat us as sin deserves. Though you had every right to abandon us, to leave us in our sin, you continually invite us and bid us to come. You continually shower your grace and kindness and love towards us. 
God, I, I pray that we would truly have repentant hearts, that your kindness would lead us to repentance, that we would give up this petty rat race of, of comparison, that we would give up this desire to exalt ourselves, to put ourselves first, to make things in our life ultimate things, and that we would realize that we are desperately sick and in need of a physician. God, that applies to both the person that's never stepped foot in a church and has committed every sin known to man and those that have grown up in the church but yet have never placed their hope truly in Jesus. God, I pray we don't take anything for granted. That we would respond to Christ's call to follow him. Lord, help us to love him more than we love our sin. To have a greater affection for him than we do the things of this world. Lord, we thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.